Welcome to the Mediate.com podcast with Veronica Kramer. Well, hey there, and welcome back to another great episode of the Mediate.com podcast. And today I'm excited because we are going to talk all about better conversations in Scotland with guest John Sturrock. And by way of background, John is founder and senior mediator at Core Solutions and has also acted as a mediator through Brick Court Chambers in London. For over 20 years, he has been a pioneer of mediation in the UK with an international reputation, and his work extends to the commercial, professional, sports, public sector, policy, and political fields. He is identified as a global elite thought leader by the Who's Who Legal, is a distinguished fellow of the International Academy of Mediators, and has been a visiting professor at the University of Edinburgh. He writes extensively and recently published the second volume of his book entitled A Mediator's Musings. John also specializes in facilitation, negotiation, mediation, and conflict management training, and consultancy for leaders in the private and public sectors, sport, the professions, and government. For many years, he has worked with various parliaments throughout the UK on improving effective scrutiny of policy. He regularly advises and coaches senior officials in the Scottish government on negotiation strategy and significant policy areas. He is founder of Collaborative Scotland, which promotes nonpartisan respectful dialogue about difficult issues and is one of the initiators of the Mediator's Green Pledge. John practiced at the Scottish Bar from 1986 to 2002 and was appointed a Queen's, now King's Council, in 1999 and as the first director of training and education in the Faculty of Advocates from 1994 to 2002. Designed and led the Scottish Bar's award-winning advocacy skills program. He trained in negotiation at Harvard University in 1996 and was named Specialist of the Year at the Scottish Legal Awards in 2003 and Mediator of the Year at the Law Awards of Scotland in 2009. He was awarded the honorary degree of Doctor of Laws from Edinburgh Napier University in 2010. So with that, John, welcome to the Mediate.com podcast and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Veronica. Real pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for that rather lengthy (laughs) introduction. (laughs) But uh, uh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, a pleasure to be speaking to everybody from, from a rather chilly Scotland today. Yeah, well, I'm I'm so excited to have you on the show and uh, your your experience and and the way that you've created this career for yourself as a mediator is really impressive. And I know I've mentioned that to you before. And by way of background for our listeners, I mean, you and I had this chance to chat before pressing record today, and I had the chance to read one of your books, the the volume one of A Mediator's Musings, and I really enjoyed it. And So the way I thought I would start things off, so I have a number of different topics that I've picked. And the way that I came upon these topics is in reading your first book, um, I really feel like I've gotten a sense to know your your mediation philosophy, your approach. And so I'm really excited to ask you to expand upon that more. And, And so that's where I've just kind of selected these various topics. So that's kind of, that's where, you know, the listener might if, if if any of you listening have a are curious as to wait, all these are such like unique topics. How did she come upon those? Well, now you know. <laughs> so, I thought maybe the first thing that I noticed in reading Volume One of A Mediator's Musings is this connection between food and mediation that I wanted to to have you talk a little bit about. And I read in your book. Um, that on mediation day that you actually invite mediation participants to have breakfast with you on mediation day. And then you also made this comparison between mediation and a Japanese tea ceremony. And I'm curious, you know, can you talk a little bit about this whole mediation food connection? Yeah. It's interesting that we, or that you describe it as a mediation food connection. I mean, I think what I might, consider it to be is a, is a connection between food and whenever people meet together, perhaps a connection between hospitality and convening in a, a gathering of, of, of negotiators uh, who, are, who are part of a mediation process. So 
what, what, what seems to me to be important, Veronica, in any mediation is that we enable people to be themselves, that we rehumanize what has often been a for, for them a dehumanizing experience, particularly if they've been in litigation or just in prolonged adversarial negotiation. And we know that one way to help people to become more human, to engage better with each other, perhaps to dispense with some of the, uh, the polarization or antipathy that might arise in, in disputes, is to break bread, to take a, a perhaps a theological expression, but in a, in a quite secular way too, to eat together. And so for me, I suppose initially, just experimenting with different ways in which one could engage uh, the parties and help them to to, to get to know each other. Uh, the idea of inviting them to eat with me at an early stage in the process seemed in a sense to be obvious, logical, if you like. Um, and so so for me, the way it works is that I, I meet with the, the parties and their lawyers and their um, experts, whoever else may be in, in their in their team privately uh, for, for half an hour or so at the start of the mediation day. Uh, and then, not always, because it doesn't always seem to be appropriate, but, but most frequently, we'll invite them all to come to the main plenary room, as it were, where hopefully somebody has laid out the refreshments. Now, for, for me and for others of us in this part of the world, Sometimes that might be what we call a bacon roll, but again, that we've got to be sensitive to the different um, needs that people have. So, so food of some sort, refreshment, pastries, fruit, um, coffee, tea, biscuits, whatever, whatever might constitute a, more than just a passing uh, meal or, or passing refreshment at that stage in the day. And I, and I invite them to come expecting to do this. I talk it through with the lawyers in advance of the mediation process. So we take it bit by bit. For the parties themselves, the principles, this may often be an opportunity to meet for the first time because they may not have done so. Imagine a, a claimant and an insurer, for example. It may be an opportunity to meet again, people who have who've known each other, who work together in partnership or collaboration in some way or other, in contract or otherwise, to re-engage. Now, that may be a renewal of friendship, which may or may not have become somewhat difficult in, in, in recent times. Or it may be uh, a renewal of an acquaintance which has been particularly difficult. And I can remember some fairly graphic occasions where previously when these people had met, they had fallen out, they'd argued, perhaps a negotiation had disintegrated or whatever. So it's an opportunity for them to, to re-engage with each other. And that's, of course, not easy. And it wouldn't be easy in a, in a sterile environment uh, where, where they just met uh, simply without any, without any prop, without any context. And so what food does is it gives them the opportunity to to um, to meet where, where, where there's a gathering, where there's a sharing, sharing of food, a breaking of bread. And I'll invite them to serve each other. I'll invite them, the principals to look for each other. I'll invite the lawyers to look for the clients on the other side with whom they perhaps haven't met. I'll invite experts, perhaps again, to introduce themselves, perhaps to engage with each other, perhaps to meet counsel on the other side, whoever it may be. And it's fascinating because people come, in, come into this with, with a degree of anxiety, um, uncertainty, perhaps even a, a, a presumption that it won't work. But Veronica, nearly always, but I can't think of any situation in which it hasn't worked, nearly always there's a kind of a breaking down of these barriers, these resistances, and people just naturally, because it's what you do when there's food, <laughs> people naturally speak to each other, perhaps anxiously and nervously to start off with, but very quickly, and it's fascinating to observe. I usually stand back and just watch. Fascinating as as the, the principles, for example, find common ground very easy, remind each other about something which they have in common or a mutual interest or a family discussion or whatever it might be. And the atmosphere changes. So, that, and, and of course, the, the, the point of mediation is that people need to work together. So we have to depolarize, de-antagonize, rehumanize, as I say, the whole process. And what I do is give them maybe 10 or 15 minutes and, it, and, and, and they can get into quite intense conversations, sometimes about the, the dispute, but, but very often not. And, and I would discourage them from getting into any detail about the dispute itself. And then I will call call them to order as well. So I'll, I'll, I'll tap my pen on the glass and I'll explain to the group whose attention I've managed to engage why we're doing this. And I'll explain that some of the research shows that eating together changes the neural pathways, um, re-engages different ways of thinking, 
helps us to renew and rebuild relationships. And as I said earlier on, helps to rehumanize uh, the process. Because of course, this this process of mediation is a, is a negotiation after all. And I explain how one has to help the other. If this is going to be successful, A has to do something which works for B and B has to do something which works for A. And I'll talk about some of the the neuroscience behind all of this, the cognitive biases that they may be affected by. I just really emphasize the importance of working together. And I may have a couple of visuals on a, on a, on a, on a flip chart, which I'll share with them. And that just sets the scene, Veronica. So you asked me about my philosophy, you talk about my philosophy. My philosophy is to enable the parties, particularly the, the clients themselves, to be able to engage in meaningful, respectful, courteous conversations negotiations in order to discover whether they can resolve the dispute which they have. So that puts it all into context. It's quite a, a lengthy dissertation, really, but it is quite remarkable how effective this is. And of course, in doing this in this way uh, and, and creating this engagement, one can renew the engagement as the day goes on because it becomes much easier then for people to meet and, and, and in different combinations. And while we've emphasised eating at the start of the mediation process and under the, the heading, if you like, of breakfast, of course, one can bring people together for, for lunch. And I'm, I'm very often in mediations which go on later in the day, it's quite convenient to arrange eating in the evening, perhaps, um, which can so often just be done in, in parties' rooms, but actually to bring people together, even if it's just to break the pizza up and, and together and share it out with each other, because that renews that, that engagement in that particular way. So... Um, while we focus on the beginning of the day, let's not forget that, that, that eating together, breaking bread together, having food together may actually have value throughout the mediation process. Yeah, that makes sense. And I could see how, I mean, what you're doing in that process is you're you're kind of th taking things step by step. So instead of immediately just having parties show up to the venue where you're conducting the mediation and whether they're in joint session or in caucus and immediately start talking about those difficult issues, you're sort of, you're warming people up, getting people used to interacting with one another. And I'm yeah. curious. So with this, I mean, are parties ever reluctant or has anyone ever declined to have breakfast when you've extended this invitation, um, you know, to have yeah, breakfast there, with there, the other there, party? There will be occasions where it's just not appropriate. Yeah. Um, there was, there was an occasion recently where I had whistleblowers uh, who were involved in litigation with a public sector body, and there had been a great deal of antagonism, anxiety, and discomfort so far as they were concerned. So at the early stage of the day, it just wasn't comfortable for them to engage in this socialization. Um, there came a point later in the day when it was much easier, but that had required perhaps more set-piece uh, preparation, as it were, for, for this activity. So there will always be exceptions to the rule. And certainly, this is not something I would ever force on somebody or compel them to do. I would always have discussed through in advance with, with the attorneys, the lawyers, as we, we call them here, uh, I, I would have conference calls in advance, discuss the process and what we're going to do. And therefore, this is something which, when we first meet on the day, clients and their advisors are aware is is likely to happen nearly always people have said yes we would like to do this but it's always an option if you like nobody's compelled to do something which they don't want to do i mean that's a general proposition for mediation in any event isn't it one can always say to the parties it's entirely up to you how you do this i can't make you do this however here's an idea and, and so nearly always they, they're prepared to run with it interesting all right, now I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about comparisons of, of mediation to sport. So in in your book, you talked about a little bit about uh, cricket and um, comparing you know excellence in sports to excellence in mediation. So I'm curious, from your perspective, what do you think makes a world-class mediator? Well, it's interesting, knowing that you're going to ask me this question, I I gave it some thought. I came up with a number of words beginning with P. So if I may, I'm going to I'm going to work through these. I think the first P is the recognition of the importance of the, the people involved, the parties, and the the role of the mediator. So 
for me, a world-class mediator is somebody who will be humble and humble about their role in the mediation process, uh, ensuring that the parties have primacy. Um, I, I'm a huge believer in, in, in client autonomy. I think that's the point of the mediation process is to restore autonomy to the clients. And I wish to give the clients as much of a role as possible and their place in the process as much as possible. So that would be the first thing. I think it's, it's, this, it's the ability to see the, the the place, the role of the of the mediator, and the importance of the, the the people whose dispute it is that we're dealing with and giving them that that primary position. Um, I, I wrote down also pause actually, uh, Veronica. I think that I think world class sports people seem to have a moment extra before they play the shot whatever it might be. Now, you mentioned cricket, which is a much more of a British sport than perhaps the sport that many of your audience will enjoy. Uh, but in cricket, I remember learning about a, a world-class uh, cricket player who waited a microsecond longer than a colleague of his before he played the shot that the ball, uh, with, with the bowler bowling the ball in his direction. And in that microsecond, he was able to make all sorts of adjustments which turned his performance from merely competent into world-class. And I think it's in these micro-moments that mediators who aspire to be really excellent at what they do can make a difference. So it's that pause before asking a question. It's the reformulation of a particularly difficult phrase, perhaps. It's the ability to stand back. It actually takes me to another of my P's. It's to take perspective, to stand back and just look at the, the situation, look at the players, look at the field as it were, and even that may be in a moment. It's the it's the ability, here's another P, to understand one's own personal psychology, two Ps perhaps, and be aware of the triggers that might cause one to react in a way which is unhelpful. I know that I can be triggered adversely by certain people saying certain things or doing certain things. I'm going to take an example. Uh, sometimes lawyers who try and tell me what they think I should be doing next, or indeed tell me what I should be doing next or what the process should should be next. There's a certain way in which that can be done that can trigger me in an adverse way, and so I need to be able just to pause to recognise that in myself and take stock before I act or react, say or whatever it is I might I might, I might do next. Um, there's another attribute of really good sports people, which I remember reading about, and that's peripheral vision. And isn't that fascinating? That idea of being able to see not only what's direct in front of you and what's obvious, but to be aware of the things that are happening at the side. Now, that could be literal, of course, or metaphorical. But, but, but having all one's senses attuned to pick up those little nuances, the words that might have been said or were just said, a movement a glance away, a discomfort felt by somebody else in the team, perhaps in the group, if you have a meeting with them. So that ability just to, again, be consciously aware, and it's conscious rather than subconscious, because the conscious then means you can act on it, of, of the little things arising at the margins. Another P for me um, was practice. So again, what I have been interested in, in working with, with sports people, and I've had the privilege of working with world-class athletes, gold medal winners and, and so forth. Um, they practice their skills a lot and then they practice them again. And so that degree of self-discipline, and it's very easy for us mediators to assume that we've, we've mastered our technique um, and, and to I, I, I just go into every mediation just assuming that we will, we will be able to do it in the way we did before. But there's a real danger in assuming mastery that we slip back very easily into incompetence, unconscious incompetence, perhaps. So being prepared to continue to practice just even the little things that we've been talking about, how you're asking of a, of, a, of a crucial question, for example, the reframing of a, of a difficult expression, whatever it might be. I think all of these things are attributes of both excellent sports people, and I would imply that and say attributes of world-class mediators. Yeah, gosh. And there were so many golden nuggets in there. <laughs> I was trying to jot down notes to ask follow-ups. And I guess maybe the first thing just to you know play along with this metaphor of kind of comparing, you know, excellence in mediation to excellence in sports. One thing I've noticed about the field of mediation is, at least it's been my experience, maybe it's different, you know, in other other 
parts of the world or other parts of, of the country. I'm based in Ohio in the United States. But I noticed mediation tends to be a solitary sport, if you will, for the mediator, right? It's not often that you have a co-mediator in the room. Um, I haven't really come across many mediators who work in like a larger mediation practice, if you will. When I think about sports, you think about if athletes have a coach, someone who can observe their performance, give them feedback in the moment to help them practice that good technique. So if we think about kind of comparing that and, and trying to be excellent as mediators, do you have any thoughts or suggestions as to how mediators can get that valuable feedback so that they can continue on that journey towards excellence? Yeah, I think that's a very, very astute question. I'm speaking to somebody who works very much on my own a lot of the time. I think we possibly fail to take advantage of learning opportunities. Um, there are mediators, certainly in this country, in the family field, we talk about supervision, and that is a regular and disciplined conversation with, with another, a mentor, a coach, one might call it another, to discuss how things go. I don't do that on any sort of regular or disciplined way. For me, the the safety valves, and maybe they're just safety valves, is that very often, although not always, I have an assistant with me, an observer, actually, somebody we've, we've trained recently in a, in, a, in a training course, and I encourage them to discuss with me during and after mediation how things have gone and what they've observed. So that's a, that's a minimal uh, contribution, if you like. I'm fortunate, Veronica, that I do a lot of training and coaching of other people, uh, and it's usually at a fairly high level. So I'm constantly challenged to reflect on my own techniques, skills, and practices. So that certainly means that I do a lot of reflecting about what I do and how I do it. And I suppose that is a third element of it, at least to be sure that one is self-reflective and has a conversation uh, with oneself about about what what's happened, what's not happened, what's worked and what's what's not working, how to do it better, and so forth. But I think it's I think it's a good point. And I think speaking as somebody who is who would primarily be viewed as a commercial mediator, well, that's a very very broad brush as far as I'm concerned. Um, we may well be missing something. Again, therefore, I suppose participation in in bodies such as the International Academy of Mediators, which I'm privileged to be a part, and other groupings where there may be regular meetings, whether online or in person, and a sharing of practices and experiences may be very helpful. And in fact, I was just looking at an email trail earlier today from others in the International Academy of Mediators and just thinking how useful it was to me to read their reflections on a certain area of practice, which was the topic of discussion. But yeah, it, it, I think I think there's there's no easy answer. And I think that you, you you raised for me the question as to whether or not we we might all be more thoughtful about having a coach or a mentor, a sounding board with whom we can res, regularly discuss matters. And to do that, and I repeat these words, in a self-disciplined way, uh, on a regular basis, either after each mediation or perhaps on a weekly or monthly basis. So I think lots of food for thought there. And I suspect many of your listeners will have people with whom they work in a more uh, considered manner than perhaps I'm, I'm suggesting. So I think it, it, it causes us all to ask questions about that. And, and thank you for doing so. Yeah, definitely. And then the other thing I wanted to pull out there is um, I loved how you talked about taking that pause, how in sports, those who are, you know, reach that level of excellence, they, they take that pause to be mindful. And, and, and that reminds me of just this whole idea of being purposeful with what you do. So I'll say it again. I'm sure I've said it in other episodes. I remember my basic mediation training, learning it as it's been anywhere from like a five to seven stage model, depends on on what training I, I took. And I took a couple different ones. And, you know, I remember as a mediator early on, I would tend to just kind of follow those steps kind of, one after the other and oh this is the way i was trained this is the next thing and 
you know, it was only after mediating a few years that I that I started to be more mindful and take those pauses and start to be more purposeful and think through, now wait, am I doing this next phase or asking this question, whatever it is, because the mediation model that I was trained in told me to, or because the parties need for me <laughs> to do it. So I'm curious you know, as you reflect on your mediations and you talk about using that opportunity to take that pause, are there particular points in the mediation that you have found that pause to be most helpful? So like, for example, I'm thinking about, is it when parties are trading proposals? Is it when they reached impasse? Like if you're a mediator trying to strategically think because we all know like if parties are in joint session, sometimes that information and those statements, they're, they're coming a mile a minute, <laughs> but sometimes it can be hard to take that extra pause. So as you think about your mediations, are there, are there strategic places where you think it's been easier as the mediator to kind of work in that pause so that you can be mindful about your next step, your next question, whatever it is? Well, I pause to reflect on my answer to that. <laughs> um, I, I don't think that there is a particular place where one would say it was easier, it was more useful than otherwise. I, th I think the key is always to be aware of the opportunity because if, if every mediation is different. Every circumstance has the potential to throw up a, 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 a curiosity or, or, a, or a challenge or a difficulty of some sort. I mean, you, you give the example of a joint meeting where information is coming fast and, and furious and of course it's not just the mediator who then has a danger of overload it's, it's the parties and those with whom they're working as well so i suppose the pause is not only for the mediator the pause is for the for all those involved in the mediation process and there's a risk there's always a risk of going too far too fast and i say that often at the beginning of the day but as, as momentum picks up perhaps towards the end of the day and, and negotiations are well in hand and people can see a potential finishing line. Maybe I'm about to argue against myself here, but that might be a time when it's really important just to have that pause, to allow people to go back to the room. And often they'll ask to do this, to go back to the room, to digest what's been said, to perhaps rethink what they had proposed, uh, to come back with a different uh, way of approaching uh, the problem solving. So I, I think, and I would, I, I would, assert that this is something one has to be have in mind all the time and and it's it's so easy veronica for the adrenaline to kick in and for that sense of urgency and pace to pick up as the as the day goes on uh, and, and 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 therefore to find a way just to 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 calm that down and that could happen i mean it could happen very early on i mean it could, something could happen in, a, in, a, in an initial meeting uh, which triggers a response that would want one would want to try to avoid. So I, I think that you know, having in mind that 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 need just to breathe, just to allow a second or two to elapse, arises all the time. And you really got me thinking about this actually. And I'm and I'm very aware how easy it is to get into a pattern, particularly of, of urgency, you know, when 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 you want to make progress, maybe you're under pressure to make progress, and that is the very point at which. It's necessary to step back. And as I said earlier on, actually, it's not just a pause. It's the sense of perspective, surveying the field, looking to see how people are positioned, what the next play might be. And you can only do that if you've created that opportunity to to, to, to take a break. So what about you? What, what do you think? Do you think that there's any particular time where that pause would be especially helpful? Gosh, I mean, certainly when there's some sort of impasse. Um, yeah, I mean, I think maybe before, in addition to impasse, I would say really before parties make that first settlement offer, because what I used to notice in my mediations, especially when parties were really far apart, those initial offers um kind of became like an anchor or like a reference point, you know, that people tended, there would be some movement after those initial offers, um, but not as much as I would have thought. So maybe I would think maybe before 
I would even ask parties for their first initial demand offer, whatever it was, maybe take that pause there and think to myself, are they at the point where they are ready to make an offer? Like, have they received enough information to assess their strengths or weaknesses to be able to put together that first initial offer? Because I know that that initial offer is going, for better or worse, is going to be a reference point for, you know, how much movement there's going to be subsequent to that. Yeah. And that, that, that's interesting, isn't it? And, and I think I would probably add to that that the pause might also entail whether or not to make that offer at all and, yeah. and to invite them to consider the effect of making a pause, or making a proposal that might appear to be derisory or insulting. And in my practice, what I will often do is get quite a long way in an understanding of what the party is prepared to offer and accept before making these explicit between the parties. So I'm not a great believer in taking the first proposal to one room and then coming back with a counter-proposal from the other room. I'd much rather move the parties along with me, as it were, and get into um, that that zone where we know that it's much more likely that a settlement or a resolution might be achieved. And all of that takes quite a lot of of, of thought actually and time and therefore pausing almost at each stage. So I think the invitation to parties to pause, to consider, contemplate and absorb what they're about to do or what's being done is as important perhaps as the mediator pausing also. Oh, absolutely. And while we're talking about strategy, I thought this would be a good point to ask this next question. In your book, you talked about this whole idea of mediating minimally. And I was really curious about that. That's the that's the first time I've heard that phrase. Can you tell me about that? Because I, you know, I, I think back to my basic mediation training. So I was trained as a facilitative mediator. And the phrase that always, you know, rings in my mind is, you know, the mediator controls the process, the parties control the outcome. So I'm curious, you know, as I think about mediator controlling the process and then your your idea of mediating minimally. Can you tell me about what that what that means, what that looks like? Yeah, and I think it's, it's it's good to reflect back on how we were all trained because we were all trained in a certain way and the danger perhaps is we treat that as a performer from which we can't depart. So I think that's a, it's a very important first point. And certainly when I refer to food, breaking bread and breakfast, that's not something I was ever trained in. So that's something that we, we learn as we go along. Um, mediating minimally, it came from an experience that I had when I arrived one day, I think it was in London, to conduct a mediation. And I had had um, a particularly spicy meal the night before, which had had an adverse reaction. And I was not at all well that morning. And I had to, in fact, go to, fortunately, the mediation took place in a hotel. So I had to go to one of the bedrooms in the hotel initially when I arrived, uh, just to rest, actually, because I'd been quite unwell. And the question was whether or not to conduct the mediation at all. But the mediation had to go ahead because the parties were all there. It had been quite difficult to convene, to get them all at the same time, in the same place, and so forth. So that day, I required to mediate minimally in that I did what I could. I turned up at meetings and facilitated discussions where I could, but I also had to retreat fairly regularly. I even remember having a warm bath, which I, funny enough, I, I've just reminded myself about, I must do that more often in mediations. It's very, it's very relaxing. <laughs> Maybe that's a form of pause. But I think that the, the serious point is that that illustrated for me something which I have learned more and more, and that is that the role of the mediator is not to dominate. It's not the mediator's show. Now, you mentioned managing process and, 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 and so forth, and it's the party's outcome. Absolutely, it's the party's solution. But I think even in managing process, our job is to have a, a steady hand at the tiller, as it were, and to make little adjustments as we go along. But I'm more and more impressed by the idea that this is the party's process, which I'm prepared to help to facilitate. So to take an example, Veronica, in the first half of my mediation career to date, I would have spent a lot of the time moving from room to room, taking ideas, information, proposals, offers, uh, from, as you call it, caucus to caucus, I would call it private meeting to private meeting. And in doing that, I took a load upon myself. 
to assimilate the information, to digest it, to reformulate it, to express it in another room. And that, of course, is quite a, that's a serious role, not least because it carries a risk of, of, of misinforming another party or misdescribing inadvertently or otherwise what's been said in, in, in one of the rooms. As time has gone on, I find I do that far less. I spend little segments of time with parties in their private room or their caucus rooms. And much more often than I used to do, and much more often than, than I would have imagined in the past, I would have done, I bring people together. Now, that can be in various combinations. It could be the clients on their own. It could be the clients with the lawyers. It could be the lawyers on their own. It could be the experts. Whatever the combination might be, uh, as the as the day dictates or the time of the day dictates. And I encourage them to share the information with each other. Now, that in the old days, for me, that would have carried risk because the risk would be that they would abuse each other in some way, shape, or form. So that's where those little segments of private meeting really matter. I have a lot of coaching techniques which I use with parties in setting the scene with them and working with them and how they will take information to another room. But what I'm doing is I'm reducing my impact on the process, reducing my role. I'm still there crucially to make sure there's a safe space, to make sure there's a communication bridge, to act as a mentor and sounding board as they think tactically and strategically about what to do and how to say it, and to make sure that there's a safe space if things become a bit difficult to manage. But I would say that my active involvement in the substance and in the exchange of information about substance is much less than it used to be. So whether it's minimal or reduced, <laughs> it might be a question, but I, but I just think that the, 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 the mediator's role, uh, come back to this idea of, of humility, the mediator's role is to do the, the least necessary to restore to the parties the ability to reach a solution for themselves. And come back again to autonomy. Most clients, most lawyers who are involved in mediation have done this countless of times without mediators being present. We're present because there's a particular difficulty, of course, but they're very able in most situations to work things out for themselves with a little help from us. And I think the idea of mediator as hero, I have achieved a successful outcome here. I have got 90% settlement rate or whatever, um, actually speaks of a misunderstanding of our role, certainly from my perspective. Um, our role is to help and use the word facilitation. I hope our role is to help to facilitate conversations, negotiations, discussions, and help parties reach an outcome if that's what they wish, and no more. So I hope that it, that that helps to illustrate a little bit of what I mean by mediating minimally. And of course, we're working with a continuum, aren't we? A spectrum, and it will depend upon the circumstances what that actually means in any particular case. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the thought that kept coming to mind as you were sharing that is um, the Pareto principle in economics, the whole idea that, you know, 20% of the input leads to 80% of the results. And just going back to, you know, the, 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 the idea or the connection between, you know, excellence in sports, excellence in mediation. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is kind of throughout your experience, you know, You've discovered like what are those what are the the key um behaviors actions from the mediator what are those most important those the most important interactions that are going to make the biggest results yeah you know? i think that's a great that's a great point i remember hearing about the golfer tiger woods who says something along the lines of i prepare everything i set myself up and then i get out of my own way yeah so our job as mediators, of course, is to prepare the party, is to set them up. And the breakfast meeting was an example of that earlier on in this interview. The coaching prior to making an offer or even making that offer at all, if it might be perceived to be insulting, that's part of the preparation. But our job is also to get, get out of the way and ultimately let the parties work things out for themselves and fashion their own agreement if that's what they wish to do. Now, that's not to minimise the impact. You're absolutely right. There are these touchstone interventions, which are critical so far as the mediator is concerned. And of course, the more that we're privileged to do this, the more that we understand what these are. And they come to us intuitively, or they come to us consciously through our experience. Uh, and that, and that's, a, that's a, a wonderful thing to be able to say. But I think this, again, it just came back to this, this understanding of the role. Absolutely. 
And now I'm curious, you know, to get your your take on this next topic. And and one of the themes, one of the threads that I um, read about in your book is the you know mediation and politics. And there were these ideas of cooperation, interconnectedness. And I know, you know, throughout your mediation career, I mean, you've played a role in policy making, decision making in Scotland. What is it that you think makes mediators, you know, uniquely situated to be a part of the solution when it comes to, you know, discussions about diff- difficult political issues? Well, I think we should be careful with our language. I'm not. I'm not sure. Uniquely is is the right word. Certainly, I, I, and I'll, I'll argue this. I think mediators can play a really helpful role. Not sure we would be part of the solution, Veronica. And I think you know we, we help we help others to reach their solution. But these two thoughts aside, well, when you think about politics, politics is um, in a sense it's it's dispute resolution in the extreme, isn't it? And particularly these days when we see the polarization. That occurs so often in, in contemporary politics in your country and in my country and elsewhere. We see the confrontational nature of it, the adversarialism, um, the antagonism, which which is so profound now in politics in so many different ways, and, and the loss to all of us in the public space, in the public square, of the ability to have conversations which are courteous, respectful, constructive and, and, and forward-looking. So all of that is, is is stuff we know as mediators, and we have applied it diligently in the commercial, family, neighbourhood, environmental and other spheres, but perhaps much less so in the political sphere. And that interests me because I think that we do have some value to bring, whether uniquely or otherwise, to the way in which the, the political process conducts itself and, and, and the way in which political discourse is engaged in. So again, I think the role of the mediator can be to to facilitate conversations, uh, to bring people together, perhaps who have very different points of view in in the political world on particular matters, or more generally on a on a party party political basis, um, to enable uh, um, conversations to be had which are respectful, to enable people to build relationships, and that's really important because very often one of the things which is missing is is relationships, particularly across political divides. And if possible, help them to find common ground. And of course, as one of our politicians said, and I'm sure it's been said on many occasions, we all have much more in common than separates us. But the trouble is we focus on that part which separates us and politics, in a sense, is about that. So I think helping politicians to find areas of common ground and indeed to find what's in the public interest, because very often what predominates is the party political interest. And that is so often and obviously inconsistent with the public interest the common good, as it were. So I remember uh, not that long ago having uh, some fairly senior politicians in our country uh, come round to our house and and, and and join us for supper. And it was just an opportunity just to talk about um, some of the issues that were were important in Scotland at the time. We've, we've got an ongoing issue here about the, ind- the possible independence of Scotland from the rest of the United Kingdom. And that tends to dominate our our politics uh, and having people around the table just talking about that and talking about the impact of that and talk, talking about what they shared in, in common rather than what uh, caused them to have differences was, was actually very powerful, but more powerful, Veronica, was just the building of relationships, people who haven't had the opportunity to really get to know each other as people, to understand the, the, the family context or their, 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 their um, social context, their, their background, where they grew up and so forth and so on. So all of that was powerful. I also was um, very much involved in something we called Collaborative Scotland. At the time of our first independence referendum in 2014, we set up Collaborative Scotland with the express um, uh, purpose of encouraging dialogue about matters to do with politics, to do with whether Scotland should or should not be a part of the United Kingdom, but without associating with either a yes or a no vote. In other words, trying to move away from the binary black and white yes, no, right, wrong, in, out approach, which is so dominant in politics to something much more nuanced. And the question we posed was what kind of or what type of Scotland do we want to see? Uh, And that's, of course, a much more fundamental question than the means to the end, which the constitutional question tends to tends to suggest. So there are all of these all of these opportunities. I have to, to observe that there are also missed opportunities. We 
have negotiated, we, the United Kingdom has negotiated its exit from the European Union in the last few years. And there's some recent writing about this, books written by those who participated. And to be quite honest with you, some of the negotiation conducted particularly by the UK government was was dismaying. To somebody who understands negotiation on any objective basis, it was, and I, I think I can go public and say this, it was rank incompetence. And that has caused a huge difficulty for the United Kingdom going forward. Now, a number of people offered to mediate in that particular setting, and nothing ever came of that. But had mediators been involved, it is at least possible that more optimal or more helpful and constructive relationships would have been built, communication bridges established, and better outcomes achieved for all concerned. So there's a there's a good example. As I look forward in our country to the possibility, and it's only a possibility of Scotland becoming or continuing to aspire to become an independent nation, the need for really good negotiation with the rest of the United Kingdom will be paramount. And of course, mediators could play a role in that. So uh, it may be naive, it may be fanciful, but I think we have something to offer, something quite significant to offer, whether uniquely or not, but certainly to offer in the political world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I want to pull out something that you just said there, um, because you mentioned Collaborative Scotland, and I know that's the not-for-profit that you are the founder of. And in preparation for our conversation today, I read that in 2017, you did a Better Conversations bus tour um, in Scotland. Can you can you tell me a little bit about that, just to kind of wrap things up? Yeah. yeah. Well, one of our um, central uh, messages with Collaborative Scotland was what we call the commitment to respectful dialogue. And that was an eight-point um proposition which which your audience can can find by simply googling collaborativescotland.org um and, and more and more it, it, it we, we came to understand the importance of allowing people to to engage in, in that kind of dialogue with, with respect uh, and we thought that rather than being stuck where we are here and I, i'm based in edinburgh folks so that's uh, the capital of scotland in the in, in the central most populated part of edinburgh a part of scotland i should say we thought that we really uh, respectful uh, and interesting to take these ideas on the road. And because I have an affinity with the north and west of Scotland, and indeed had a good friend who was promoting the north and west of Scotland on a tourist route called North Coast 500, we thought we would get into a bus and we would get on the road and visit local communities on the North Coast 500 in the north and west Highland area of Scotland. So we, we spent a week and we visited all sorts of communities from, from from reasonably large towns to very small villages. We had meetings with sometimes only one person turning up. We had meetings in which whole communities would come along to the community hall. We met with business people to discuss some of their issues. But perhaps the most powerful uh, parts of that say, tour were when we had evening sessions and we invited members of the local community to come into the local hall. And we chatted about dialogue and how to have respectful dialogue. We used the commitment to respectful dialogue as a kind of foundation stone. And we invited them in the first half of the session to to think about questioning and listening skills, for example, and even to practice some of these. Uh, but primarily, we, we invited them to talk about issues that were important to them and to their local communities. And we got the flip charts out and we, we wrote things up and we, we, we encouraged them to work in groups and to meet with others with whom they hadn't met before. And it was a it was quite a well, for us, it was a fascinating experience. I think it was also cathartic for them. And certainly in one community, one older gentleman said, in 60 years, nobody has ever listened to us. And so a large part of this was, was just, just listening and people being heard and feeling acknowledged and valued and recognised and reassured. You know, We also came up with a whole bundle of proposals, which we incorporated in the report, which we circulated to all sorts of people. And I have to say, Veronica, the sadness for me is that we never really fully followed that up. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is that the pandemic came along. So within a couple of years of the bus tour, we were all in lockdown. And uh, one of my hopes is that sometime, maybe this year or next, we might resume the bus tour or even go back to the places we were before and just find out what, what happened and to continue these conversations. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, that sounds so powerful. And you talked about listening. I mean, I think, you know, that skill, that mediator skill of active listening, it, it, it sounds simple, but it's so powerful. There's such a difference. You know, people can tell when you are listening to understand them versus listening to respond. And Absolutely. yeah, that's, that's powerful stuff. Well, the most powerful thing I've heard in recent mediations this year has been, um, I mentioned the whistleblowers, saying to somebody who had spent maybe three hours in the same room with them, you're the first person who has really listened to us. And that was the most important thing. And although there was a money claim, the money claim took about 10 or 15 minutes to sort out towards the end of the day. It was really about them being heard, acknowledged, and as you say, listened to and listened to properly and fully. And that's one of the hardest things for any of us to do, but it's one of the most important things that any of us can do. For, for all those with whom we work, whether it's our, whether it's within our families, in our local communities, or in our work as mediators. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, John, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for hours, <laughs> learning about, you know, your different, different, your, your philosophies, your approach to mediation. It's just, it's really fascinating. Um, if any listener wants to learn more about your work or connect with you, how can they do so? Well, uh, uh, the website uh, on which um, all, my, all my many blogs are presented, and where a lot of this work, I suppose, can be can be um, discovered more more, is uh, www.core-solutions.com. Um, so, so there, there, there are, there are, there are um, blogs. There are also podcasts there, Veronica, which cover quite a lot of the, the, the technical skills, four or five-minute blogs, just short, short chapters. But you've mentioned kindly the books. So there are two book, two volumes uh, entitled A Mediator's Musings, um, and they, they're a collection of much of my writing over the last four or five years, and, and certainly you've been kind enough to look at at least one of these, and we've been talking just about some of the topics there, but there are many more covering mediation, negotiation, politics, the war in Ukraine, um, climate change, uh, policy making, and so forth and so on. The first book, all, all proceeds go to aid cancer research, and the second book goes, all proceeds go to aid research into strokes. So there's a, there's a, for reasons to do with with family situations. So if anybody would like to to purchase these, you'll get more or hear more, learn more about about some of my thoughts and also benefit a very good cause. Very good. And what I'll do is I'll go ahead and put uh, links in the show notes to both the website you mentioned and also links to your books. Thank you very much. All right. Well, hey, John, thank you so much for coming on the Mediate.com podcast. Like I said, this has been this has been a fantastic conversation. I feel like I learned so much. Well, you're a super interviewer, if I may say so. It has been a conversation, I hope, rather than an interview. We've been lovely to have actually, and I should have maybe asked you more questions, but thank you very much. I've enjoyed it enormously. It's a real privilege, Veronica, and a pleasure to be with you. Oh yeah, absolutely. And hey, if you ever want to come back on the show for part two, then <laughs> we can we can continue that. And you're you can ask me. Feel free to ask me whatever questions you wish to ask. <laughs> very happy, very happy to do that. Thank you very much. All right, all right, friends. Well, that wraps up another great episode of the podcast. We'll talk to you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com's programs and content, please visit our website at www.mediate.com.